When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Let me say hello and thank you for like tuning in tonight or eventually watching this. And I hope you really enjoy it. Um, like Jeff said, you know, we had a, a four sessions and I've truly enjoyed all of them. We started off talking about the heart. You know, we talked about CHF and all these updates. We talked about stress testing. We talked about room and indo, focusing on the adrenal gland. And of course, talking some, you know, really tough cases in rheumatology about using biologics. Then we had the gallbladder, which was one of my favorites. Who gets to get the chance to talk about the gallbladder? You know what I mean? Then we, we, we went to the kidney after that and talked about the importance about diabetes in the kidney. And, you know, for the last one, I, I couldn't help but go to my, go to my, you know, my specialty, which is always going to be the lungs. And I was thinking about what do I want to talk about? So when I was looking at the ABIM and they recently just came out with a new blueprints about what are going to be some of the changes out there, you know, um, they really do focus on obstructive lung diseases. And there were some updates, you know, and when we talk about updates, you know, we're always referencing guidelines. You know, what is my my take home message when someone says, well, have you heard this definition or this workup? It's the guidelines. You know, I always encourage saying, well, whose guidelines are you talking about? And that's why I put the word sneaky updates over here, because these updates kind of just creep in there because whose guidelines are you referring to? And definitely when we talk about, you know, the internal medicine board exams, it is definitely fair game for them to quote a specific guideline. I've seen this all the time when we talk about cardiology, when they talk about lipid management are quoting specific people, the American College of Cardiology, you know. So uh, I do want to bring up some of the things that have changed a little bit in asthma and COPD. You know, um, is it 100% guaranteed that this will make your board exams? It's hard to say. Usually when up when uh, guidelines change, what do we say? It's around that one to two years in between. But I think it's good to know these things in general. So and there's gonna be a lot of core things I guarantee will be on your board exams. So we are going to focus on obstructive lung disease, which is going to be all green. So when you look at the ABIM blueprints, you know, there are things that are going to be in green, things are going to be like in a gold yellow, and things are just going to be in red. And the green stuff is going to be the big chunk of it. So asthma and COPD are huge when we talk about, you know, glowing green for the ABIM boards. So for asthma, I'm going to talk about something called smart therapy. I want to talk about the role of an asthma control test, something called exhaled nitric oxide, a little update in leukotriene inhibitors, and this last biologic. And you know the thing I hate about biologics? I just can't pronounce any of them. So you can make fun of me if I just totally hack this one up. But this is tezepelumab. If someone can pronounce it better, all the power to you. So this is one of the newer biologics, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Then we're going to go to COPD. There are some new gold guidelines, something called the 
ABE assessment, which is going to replace the ABCD combined assessment. Um, we're going to talk about the initial COPD pharmacological management. And not to steal my own thunder, but, you know, dual long-acting bronchodilators, you know, are becoming more and more prevalent as, and using them more upfront in the management of chronic COPD. And I got to talk about triple drug therapy. And I know that Every subspecialty has their own idea of what triple drug is. In the COPD world, it's going to be that combination of a LABA, long-acting uh, beta-2 agonist, LAMA, long-acting antimuscarinic, and last would be ICS, inhaled corticosteroid. And what is the role of this triple drug therapy? So let's use some asthma updates and some board pearls. So I think the biggest one out there is that, you know, the role of the quick relief inhaler. And don't get me wrong, when I trained, I was all about being told that, you know, if you have something called mild intermittent asthma, you definitely need to, you know, avoid those triggers. And you got to have that SABA, short acting beta 2 agonist to get those pups in there, you know, your albuterol. But, you know, times have changed and guidelines are fighting other guidelines because now, you know, Certain guidelines are not even acknowledging something called mild intermittent asthma. And on top of that, they don't want you puffing away with your uh, short-acting beta-2 agonist by itself without combining it with an inhaled corticosteroid. And who's causing all this strife and anger? And I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, they're not really in fighting, but two opposite viewpoints are one called the GINA and something called the NAEPP. So GINA is... The, the Global uh, Initiative for Asthma. And of course, that deals with the world. And here in the United States, we focus on the National Asthma Education uh, Prevention Program. And they have two viewpoints about the terminology of mild intermittent asthma and the role of just giving a SABA by itself or combining SABA with an inhaled corticosteroid anytime you need an as needed. So that's what this first slide is here. You know, sure, all patients with asthma should be provided with a quick relief inhaler, but what should that be? Should it be a SABA by itself or SABA combined with an ICS? Sure, you know, SABAs are what? Bronchodilators. That's what they do. They help dilate, hopefully reverse bronchospasm, hopefully give you better airflow going in and out. But New safety information suggests that they should only SABA be used when combined with an inhaled, you know, glucocorticoid steroid. And why is that? Well, when I think of asthma, right, what are the particles that damage the lungs and asthma? They're sensitizing particles. They rev up your immune system. So, of course, when you talk about your immune system, you think about what? Immunosuppressants. And you think about what? Inhaled steroids. So that's the big debate right now. Should you just use a SABA or a SABA combined with an inhaled corticosteroid? So these are the two groups right here. We're going to talk about GINA first. That's the Global Initiative of Asthma. So they recommend that all adults and adolescents with asthma should receive an inhaled uh, glucocorticoid combination with a SABA to reduce the risk of exacerbations and to help control symptoms. And this recommendation of combining a SABA with an ICS is for any level. Notice it's bolded red of asthma severity, which includes what? Mild intermittent asthma, which they don't even like that term anymore. And they'll use 
this combination of a Saba ICS for maintenance therapy. So even if you need a couple puffs here and there, you'd use it and definitely for rescue therapy. And of course, a lot of the studies here were going to be a glucocorticoid combined with a LABA, which is in this case for motorol. And just to give some brand names out here, the one you know brand name of a LABA ICS was Simbacort. But the whole take home message was combining a glucocorticoid with a beta 2 agonist. Initially, the studies were done with, you know, LABAs and ICS, but I'll let you know that down the pipeline, in fact, something that was already FDA approved are a SABA short acting with an ICS. And right here, for mild asthma, for mild asthma, use that inhaled glucocorticoid combination with a beta 2 agonist as needed, or Anytime that you need a Saba, you gotta combine it with a glucocorticoid. So that's what Gina says. Now, what about the National Education uh, Asthma Education Prevention Program, the NAEPP? So they still recommend that, hey, it's okay to use a short-acting beta-2 agonist, and there is something called mild intermittent asthma, which we are defining as having symptoms fewer than two days per week. So their whole defense of why it's still okay to give a Saba is because they feel that Gina's recommendations were extrapolated from data suggesting that even those with mild intermittent asthma can experience serious morbidity from asthma and that ICS uses ICS use reduces asthma deaths and, mor and morbidity. And what they're saying is that they got this recommendation from the mild persistent asthma and kind of carried it over to the mild intermittent. That's why they said, however, large scale trials have not been conducted on this mild intermittent population, uh, which is the largest group of asthmatics in the US, which is totally true. So if you're giving all these mild intermittent people, which is the biggest chunk, you know, inhaled corticosteroids, I mean, these patients really have not been examined to the side effects of having lots of inhaled corticosteroid exposures. So that's a very good rebuttal. So, you know, when we think about the two, think about the National uh, Asthma Education Program, still pro-mild intermittent and okay giving Saba back here to China saying, no, anytime you need a maintenance, anytime you need a quick relief, it has to be an inhaled corticosteroid combined with a beta-2 agonist, whether that's going to be a long-acting or short-acting. So what about short-acting anticholinergics? I just thought it would be nice to put that there, you know? So short-acting anticholinergics, the classic one is what? Ipatropium, which is brand name Atrovan, are definitely less effective than Saba's in relieving acute bronchospasm in asthmatics, in asthmatics but they may be used as adjunctive therapy to Saba treatment in the management of acute exacerbation. So when you go to an ER, of course, when you're getting those nebulized therapies, they usually combine it with a albuterol and an ipratropion combination. The combination definitely has been shown to reduce hospital admission. So I'm all pro that, but I also wanna talk about long acting. So long acting, uh, you know, anticholinergics, you know, um, are definitely listed as appropriate therapy in both the GINA and NAEPP guidelines after uh, an inhaled corticosteroid and a long-acting beta agonist. But it's important to realize that, you know, LAMAs, you know what I mean, uh, are not an alternative to LABA. 
unless you're, there's a contraindication of giving a long-acting uh, beta-2 agonist. And, you know, with that being said, you know, there's definitely going to be um, uh, medications out there. And I'll just throw it out there, something called Trelogy, you know. And at the time we think of Trelogy, which is the LABA-LAMA-ICS combo, I think we talk a lot about that for COPD. It was also FDA-approved for asthma. So we've used, you know, LAMAs and asthma quite frequently. Teotropium, which goes by the brand name Spireva, also got FDA approval for asthma. So this is not new. So definitely there's a role for short acting in the acute sense. And LAMAs definitely have been FDA approved uh, for asthma, uh, not as an alternative to a LABA, but can be added on or if there's contraindications of using a LABA. So Gina and SMART therapy, why? So, you know, SMART therapy stands for single maintenance and reliever treatment. Gina no longer recommends SABA-only treatment. You know, why? The SABA-only treatment, they feel increased the risk of uh, severe exacerbations. Their mentality is that, hey, asthma is all about sensitizing particles, rubbing up the immune system. You know, we definitely need to have that anti-inflammatory component on. There's definitely evidence-based medicine supporting GINA and SMART therapy. You know, there was a SMART dosing in systematic review and meta-analysis. And one of the things on the titles was the evaluation of budesonide promoterol for maintenance and reliever therapy among patients with poorly controlled asthma. There was a SIGMA trial, S-Y-G-M-A, which was Simbacort brand name given as as needed and mild asthma. There was the ASSIST trial, A-S-I-S-T, which asthma symptoms-based adjunct in inhaled steroid therapy, and this was focusing on African-American children. So they definitely had some evidence behind, you know, Gina's recommendations. So smart therapy, why no more abuterol alone? Let me just give you some of the, the science and the clinical behind this. They just said, that, hey, if you're just be puffing away with beta-2 agonists, you're going to get beta receptor down regulation. You're going to get decreased bronchial protection from the beta-2 by itself, rebound hyper-responsiveness. You're going to get increased allergic responses. And they found out through their studies that, hey, if you have greater than two canisters of albuterol per year, that equals a higher number of ED visits, emergency department visits. And if you're doing greater than 12 canisters a year of the albuterol, you know, um, there's a high risk of death. You know, so I put this here because there's definitely different uh, beta receptors in the body. You know, um, there's beta one, beta two, and there's even beta three. Usually we focus on beta one and two. So I put this little box down here. So, if, you know, any med students kind of creeped in on this lecture. You know, remember beta one is for heart because you have only one heart and beta two is for lungs because we got two lungs. I don't know. I thought that was really cool. And I hope a med student kind of likes that. So smart therapy, what does it mean? So let's talk about these bullet points before the picture. So, you know, what it does mean is that we're going to change the thinking about appropriate medications for asthma management. And there's a lot of questions about that. I know right now when you want to give, you know, insurance wise, you know, the ICS LABA combo, like, you know, a Simbacord, you're definitely not going to get the approval by insurance for not only keeping it as your maintenance, but use it as an as needed. They're going to run out. So that's been a big thing. So, but it's definitely a change in what, how we do things. And of course, you can get around this by ordering a separate inhaled uh, um, corticosteroid in your albuterol, but who knows if they're going to cover that. And I like the second bullet point, which is, you know, 
the dogma of albuterol for reliever by itself, <clears throat> it's so yesterday. And so when I thought of that, you know, that, that phrase, I thought of this movie over here, which is, I don't know if anyone knows, I'm a big movie buff. Does anyone know what movie this is? This is Alicia Silverstone playing Cher in the movie Clueless. So I kind of aged myself. And but that movie kind of makes me laugh. I can see her kind of talking about <laughs> smart and Gina therapy up there saying it's so yesterday, you know, the and so, of course, you have to update your asthma action plans. And, you know, these changes by adding an inhaled corticosteroid to your beta 2 agonist will hopefully give you better overall control of your asthma, less ED visits, and reduce the amount and severity of exacerbations. So with that being said, you know, I just, I mentioned, you know, to change your asthma action plan. And I just wanted to mention that I hope uh, most of us, I know I could do a better job with that, you know, provide your patient with here's an example of an asthma action plan. It clarifies your medication regimen. It helps patients to identify declines in asthma control, whether based upon symptoms or peak expiratory flow, and it helps uh, guide treatment adjustments in response to a change in symptoms, you know? So all these are things that hopefully it, you could speak with your patient. You know, if they're doing good, continue your meds. If they're having a yellow or red day, here are gonna be the next steps. So I put this under the title Beyond the Pearls because this hasn't, it's not easy to get this yet because during the beginning of this talk, I was talking about combining an ICS with a short acting beta 2 agonist. And everyone's like, hey, where do I get this? So just to let you know, the combination of albuterol and budesonide has now been approved by the FDA for as needed therapy in patients greater than 18 years of age. Unfortunately, it won't be widely available until early 2024. It's here's the brand name Air Supra. I don't know if I like that name. Let me know if you like that name. <laughs> but anyways, and here's a New England Journal of Medicine article called Albuterol Budesonide Fixed Dose Combination Rescue Inhaler, which really helped uh, get the approval for the medication. So this is the trend in where medicine's going. So I'm glad we're talking about this. So let's do a question. 34-year-old dude is evaluated at a routine follow-up examination. He has a history of spirometry confirmed asthma. Yeah, he reports feeling well and denies sinus symptoms, GERD, and tobacco use. He demonstrates excellent inhaler technique. Meds are inhaled, budesonide and albuterol. On exam, vitals are normal. And the remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in evaluation? Should we administer an asthma control test? What is that? Uh, should we measure fractional exhaled nitric oxide in this patient? Should we go for the PA and lateral chest x-ray? And should we perform a six-minute walk? You know, it seems like, you know, this patient is doing well. He doesn't have any other symptoms. You know, um, here's his med. So I don't really think it's necessary to say, hey, let's get a chest x-ray for the sake of getting one. I don't think we need a baseline right now or anything like that. You know, six-minute walk, it's never wrong to get one. You know, it gives you information, but I don't feel in this young 34-year-old a six-minute walk would be the, the next thing I'm going to order in this patient. You know, it really comes down to, am I going to do a something called the asthma control test to get a more uh, kind of, you know, uh, baseline of where this patient is? To, you know, I think that's a not that bad idea. Or should we measure this exhaled nitric oxide, you know, nit exhaled nitric oxide really for more, you know, allergic asthma, 
really not the standard of what we do. It's not wrong to get one. Sometimes we use it more for diagnosis and see how they respond to therapy. But just to get a random one, there are so many things that could factor into it. I don't think I would do that. I think the best thing here is to do an asthma control test to kind of get that nice, more subjective and objective baseline. So the answer is A. So literally, this is an asthma control test here. And it just tells you that, hey, in the past four weeks, how much of the time did your asthma keep you from getting as much done at work, school, or at home? Then you answer these questions. There are going to be all these questions that take place in the past four weeks. And a score that's going to be, you know, 19 or less means your patient's asthma may not be controlled. So it's an assessment. I think it's an essential component of asthma management. You know, it uses a standardized validated questionnaire, which is the ACT, asthma control test. You know, the pheno is not really recommended to guide asthma treatment in the general population, which is one of the reasons why that was the wrong answer. You know, the asthma control test is a numerical uh, asthma control tools which are more sensitive to change in symptoms than more of a categorical tool. It's a numerical tool, so you have a, a really set number right there. And, you know, um, the higher the score indicates, the better the asthma control. So this is a, a picture of me blowing into a nitric oxide, uh, you know, but excelled nitric oxide test, you know, it's really recommended as an adjunct measure. You know, the test, it's pretty quick. It takes about five minutes and it's very similar to spirometry. Um, you know, really, I have wonderful respiratory therapists. They help, you know, they, they help guide you as you do the step. So basically, pretty much, I didn't put the clip on my nose, but uh, you put a clip on your nose, you exhale completely, your lungs are empty. Then you put the mouthpiece in your mouth. That's what I'm doing right here. And I inhale slowly. Then you exhale slowly and steadily until you hear a beep or a light comes on. And down here is the monitor. And I had to keep this kind of balloon inside these two lines there. So I have a steady blowout. And um, I may need to repeat the test, but it's much, you know, uh, it's, it's quick. You can use it to help, you know, with... Um, People who have allergic asthma, the whole thought process is that if you have a lot of eosinophils in the airway, they make a lot of nitric oxide. But unfortunately, it's just not standardized just yet. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.